Hi, you're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking in philosophy, the social sciences, and effective altruism. In this episode, we talk to Mike Hinch, who is a senior economist at ORFED, which stands for the Alliance to Feed the Earth in Disasters. We talk to Mike about why ORFED believe that nuclear fallout blocking sunlight is one of the most extreme threats to the global food supply, how this threat compares to other things such as climate change or crop killing scenarios, and perhaps most importantly, how to make sure that if a disaster ever happens, we can still make sure that everyone can be fed. We touch on lots of different aspects of ORFED's work, including how exactly crop yields would be affected after a nuclear war, why food tech like repurposed paper mills and seaweed appear to be key to recovering, and how many of the global poor could still be unable to buy enough food, even if there is enough being produced. I'll also flag that if you want to hear more about Orfed, then the 80,000 Hours podcast has recently done an excellent interview with its founder, David Denkenberger. That interview especially goes a lot more in depth on the different possible food technologies, and we've left a link to it in our write-up, where you can also find a bunch of other further readings. Lastly, I should also say that we had some technical difficulties recording, so Finn and I ended up having to re-record a bunch of our questions. Hopefully that shouldn't be too noticeable, and unfortunately Mike's audio ended up being completely fine, but if our audio ever sounds a bit odd, that'll probably be why. We're hopefully investing in some new equipment to make sure that doesn't happen again. But anyways, without further ado, here's the episode. I'm Michael Hinge. I'm an agricultural economist at Allfed, and I spend most of my time worrying about and thinking about food supplies and food affordability, and we can talk about what that means in all kinds of crises, from the, the kind we've seen now, you know, in recent years. So, for example, in 2007 and 2008, when there was food spikes, all the way up to spikes we haven't seen for a long time, which could be caused by, say, a 10% shock, right up to nuclear war and severe losses of uh, output. Yeah, well, that's definitely a big, big range of scenarios and ones that we'll hopefully delve into in a bit. But maybe a good place to start off this discussion is to ask what is a problem or question that you're currently stuck on? Oof. Well, one of, the ma- one of the big things we are worried about is in the most severe of disasters, how do we stop cooperation from unravelling? Because cooperation and countries trading and specialising and just helping each other is the only way. We could still produce enough food, it seems, in these disasters, but... Without cooperation, that becomes almost impossible. And it seems, for example, in the most recent uh, disasters we've seen, cooperation has unraveled fairly quickly. So trying to ensure that cooperation uh, is maintained is one of the things that we really worry about. Yeah, so I'm curious to hear a bit more about this. Um, so you mentioned recent disasters and presumably stuff like, like COVID and so on. Is this what you're thinking about? Is this stuff like like vaccine hoarding? What would What would this be? So again, so let's talk about COVID. One of the things, so I work at Allfed, the Alliance to Feed the Earth in Disasters, and one of the things we actually were worried about early in COVID was a breakdown in cooperation where um, it, it flew most people by, but mu- much like uh, toilet paper was running out in stores from mm. you know panic buying, countries were panic buying food because countries that are large importers were concerned about access to food if supply chains started breaking down, so we're increasing their orders. Meanwhile, exporters were worried about the converse, and so countries were starting to restrict exports, um, Russia, Vietnam, etc., just to make sure that their own urban poor could have access to food. And this had the potential to cause a cascade without uh, any underlying shock to, for example, agricultural output. And 
the this was one of the so all fed um, wrote a report uh, lobbied on behalf of this and played a small part in the final uh, response which was for example the eu and japan issuing statements that they would release as mon- uh, as many stocks as needed to balance the markets and in the end they didn't need to export or release much food at all it's simply again like you can have a negative spiral you can have a positive spiral and the mm-hmm. commitment that and the confidence that the food would be available results in people relaxing so there have been situations like this where in fairly small shocks um in terms of the actual percentage output being lost countries have reacted strong and in each case the actions are justified you know you can understand why countries would be concerned but the net system is to radically increase and be pro-cyclical rather than counter-cyclical and there have been for example good work done by countries that have the stocks available to make commitments to try and break the cycle but in severe shocks that for example exceed the ability of the you know countries like the eu and japan to deal with can we have commitments you know what what kind of structures need to be in place but cool yeah so maybe zooming out again uh, a bit you mentioned that you work for allfed can you maybe give us a quick elevator pitch of what allfed does and what you're hoping to achieve Sure. So Allfed was set up, I believe, in 2017, but a few years ago, and by uh, a few people, including um, David Denkenberger, who's uh, our head of research. And effectively, it's looking at trying to feed everybody no matter what, uh, feeding off the, or leading on from the name of his book, which was the idea of looking at, in even the most severe shocks, what can we do to produce food and basically how can we ensure that everyone is fed so it started off primarily looking at the more severe disasters so with the sunlight blocking catastrophes thing that were, things that would disrupt traditional outdoor growing but is now uh, now looks at effectively any under-researched disaster so we're also looking at for example locust outbreaks because there are the, there's the technology to manage it but not the funding so moving into the more financing end of responding to things as well as things in the middle so for example a 10 percent shock where it might be a single crop has partially failed which based on it's hard to model exactly how many people would die for that but there's for example a metaculous question currently active and it says based upon a 10 percent shock 10 percent shock to food output would at least 400 million people starve to death mm. or face starvation and the, it's sitting at about i think 40 ish percent probability so a, a surprisingly small shock to food output can lead to big system effects. So this is, we're also considering, so it, there's a big spectrum right from, say, for example, an 80 to 90% loss of food output to a 10% loss to food, food output to, say, 2 or 3%, where in each case we're looking, are we ready? Is there action that we can take? And alongside, say, EA principles, is this you know, under-researched? Can we make progress on this? Yeah, fab. So can you maybe talk a bit more about um, what exactly these scenarios are? So you mentioned these kind of large scale, say, 10% global food shock supplies. Um, yeah, what, what kind of scenarios are these? You mentioned some like killing scenarios. There's also kind of crop uh, killing scenarios. Can you maybe just walk us through uh, through a couple of these and elaborate? If we looked at, say, a 10% shock, that might be caused by a, a severe a crop disease, a a number of crop diseases potentially working together actually would probably have to be for, to hit that threshold. But also, for example, climate change, where shifting averages may be an issue across many areas, but the variability may be the primary problem for the food system. Mm-hmm. I.e., if there is a strong El Nino effect, i.e. correlated shocks to food output, because famine 
has actually, and food insecurity, while it's been rising in the most recent years, in the general trend has been downwards because we can trade. Mm. A, a collapse in output in one area, as long as it's not global, can actually be traded away. So yeah, yeah. A, a shock to one area no longer means famine necessarily. If food can get to you, you will probably still eat. Though there are, of course, many complications around this. It's at least a positive trend. But the problem is the system as a whole being shocked can be quite vulnerable. And generally, we're running quite lean. Stocks are fairly tight because as a global system, you can you know, trade away small problems. Yeah. It's expensive to hold stocks. Governments have typically stepped away from strategic stocks as a way of managing their food security. So the system as a whole can still be quite vulnerable to a systemic effect, multiple breadbasket failure is often the term. Mm. And by failure, we mean a big, not complete crop failure often, but a big chunk of output being lost over these key areas. Just want to pick up on when you mentioned variability. Did you mean variability in climate or something else? Yeah. So typically in the food system, we're talking about yields, but climate will be often the driver of this. And we can get to, so currently my work, in fact, is at the more extreme end, or primarily looking at the more extreme end, which is the, a loss of sunlight event, which is far more severe. But um, often, for example, with climate change, it might be a suddenly getting all your rain in one week mm-hmm. that completely, you know, devastate, washes away crops, you know, soil erosion, or getting no rain at all. The mean, so your average level, imagine if it was perfectly flat, the average shifting can be a problem. You can take efforts to adapt um, around that, etc. You can replant different crops. Farmers can work their way around it, and they're quite good at doing so. But nobody can deal with, for example, getting huge amounts of rain or no monsoon, mm. depending upon the year. So those are the kind of things we're worried about. But at the more extreme end, we then come into, for example, what we call a loss of sunlight event. So that can have three primary causes, which would be nuclear winter. So that is a nuclear war throwing a large amount of burnt material, typically soot, up into the upper atmosphere, a supervolcano, or a large vol- uh, asteroid impact. And of the probability of these, probably the nuclear winter is the most likely, simply for the same argument as, for example, Toby Ord and the Precipice, where we can look through just the geolog- geological record and see how many times a supervolcano has occurred and events of these significance. So we should say volcanic eruptions, which we are also concerned about, of lesser magnitude have occurred and they occur approximately every 300-ish years. So Tambora, the year without a summer, this was the eruption of a volcano in Indonesia, Tambora. And uh, in 1815, this triggered what's known as the year without a summer. Funnily enough, Frankenstein was part, was written partially due to this, with basically Mary Shelley and others um, going to a, a retreat, um, sheltering from the terrible weather. But crops failed across Europe. People were selling, and particularly inland, where it was harder to import food. Uh, Switzerland, Germany saw, ext- certain areas saw extensive depopulation, uh, famine, death, and people moving. And it was a very large impact. And it's, again, hard, uh, difficult to get detailed records, but it also impacted large areas across China. And the death toll is, again, difficult to measure, but could potentially be in the tens or hundreds of thousands from that mm-hmm. event. And such event occurring today could be much worse. And on average, these occur approximately every 300 or so years. 
Can you maybe just spell out why exactly a supervolcano or asteroid or nuclear disaster would, would lead to a crop failure? So I know, for example, when we think about nuclear war, um, we think a lot about like immediate deaths coming on from these explosions. But why would this linger about and why would this um, affect the, the food supply? Yeah, this is an interesting point. And so there are a number of factors which uh, play together. So let's take, say, a supervolcano or a large volcanic eruption. The initial material ejected rises very high into the stratosphere and above the level where water and moisture typically is. So this prevents the uh, particles from clumping or with water around, they'll typically stick to the water and they'll be rained out fairly quickly. But if they go too high up in the stratosphere, this cannot occur or occurs very slowly. So it can persist for a longer period. And so this blocks a chunk of the sunlight arriving. uh, And despite, for example, the eruption occurring in the southern hemisphere, it can perfectly possibly spread, and it takes time, but it will spread across the entire world. So there's the primary effect is loss of sunlight, so that's temperature falling, and radiation, effect of radiation downwelling at the surface falling, which both affect crop growth. And there are other secondary effects, such as wind speed will fluctuate. Typically it will fall simply because there's lower energy in the system, but in some areas wind speed could rise. Uh, But And similarly with precipitation. Precipitation on average will fall. Some areas may see higher, but overall you get less rain, less sunlight and less radiation, which all feeds into your crop network. And outdoor growing crops are the vast majority of our food supplies. And even, for example, many animal products that people consume are indirectly tied to this. For example, if you're drinking milk, it may well be at least partially fed on corn and grain produced Mm. and to supply the products. Um, Can you speak to the state of researching and modelling nuclear winters? I know I think Carl Sagan and others were worrying about this in the 80s, but what's happened since then? The the primary research, yes, was in the 80s with people like Sagan and one of the team who was looking at that quite early, um, Alan Robock, is still and now, you know, still managing some of these projects. But more recently, as particularly as climate change models started to evolve and the computing power evolved as, alongside it, these techniques were applied, but almost in reverse. It's not quite, and this is, it's not simply the case that, you know, a nuclear winter is the opposite of climate change. It's more complicated than that, but it it has the, the same tools to model climate change can at least be applied. So, for example, in 2007, there was Toon, uh, led a team and published a paper looking at this with the latest uh, at that time data. And then more recently in 2019, Coop uh, led a team with some others. Uh, and I, we can attach it if uh, if your listeners are interested. Mm-hmm. But um, Coop in particular was the paper that allowed us to start to um, do our work because Coop uh, provided the data on a GIS basis. So effectively modeling a large amount of weather data as accurately as possible or based on their model, on a grid pattern. It allows you to basically, almost like uh, a, a chessboard, you've, you've divided the earth up into little cells and your weather system is now modelling each cell and working out, for example, average temperatures, average precipitation, so you can compare before and after. And then applying this to crop models, uh, we can start to come up with projections of what will happen and in fact, there's a recent paper, uh, I think uh, it's in preprint at the moment, it's not uh, yet published, but um, in Nature Food, but led by Gia, uh, again with Robok as one of the authors, l- which has in turn applied this to food systems and trying to say, 
based upon this climate data, what do we expect for yields, which is fundamentally what we care about for the food system? Yeah, fab. And maybe before we dive into like yields and stuff, um, like more precisely, can you maybe give us just a big picture of what does the climate look like um, under these events? So, for example, when we compare this to climate change, we often talk about two or three degrees Celsius warming, you know, all the way up to, to eight degrees in these kind of extreme cases. How does this picture compare to when we talk about super volcanoes or, or nuclear war and the like? This is difficult. So it depends upon the magnitude. So volcanoes will be slightly different to nuclear winter because volcanoes are primary, primarily uh, sulfates, whereas nuclear winter will be primarily black soot. But we think in terms of the teragrams, which is a million tons of soot emitted into the stratosphere, small regional exchanges could be, say, five teragrams. Uh, which would still have a cooling effect, and that could still have significant disruptions, right up to a full-scale nuclear exchange between two parties engaging in significant counter-value strikes, i.e. targeting enemy cities, could lead to 150 teragrams, which is the not even necessarily the worst case. A bad actor attempting to cause a nuclear winter may do uh, may cause more, but this is the feasible upper limit for it, it based upon... Uh, understandings of doctrines, this would be the feasible upper limit for a nuclear winter. So this would be around eight degrees of cooling. So, And this is the problem. Crops are tailored to, of course, the climate around them. So crops in the northern hemisphere tend to be more cold tolerant based upon precipitation, etc. They often may, for example, have freezing requirements. So they need to be uh, either certain temperatures or frozen in order to trigger parts of their life cycle, etc., etc. So with an eight degree of cooling, these crops would be frozen solid and unable to grow. Meanwhile, maize, soybeans, sugarcane, crops in the tropics, which are providing big chunks of calories and other nutritional uh, products, uh, would be just knocked off their optimal and would be barely growing. So the Gia uh, paper is something, it varies year to year, but it can be as low as 10 to 20% of current output would be produced based upon crops in their current location post-nuclear winter. So we've been talking about shocks, principally, I guess, from nuclear winter, but also from winters caused by uh, supervolcano eruptions or asteroid impacts. Uh, so these are big, sudden events, right? But some people are also worried about the effects on food supply from climate change, especially kind of worst case scenarios, right? Where it's not so much one big shock, but more like a kind of slow dwindling away of the planet's capacity to feed itself. Um, and also there are some more specific concerns like fish stocks being depleted or bees disappearing and so on. So could you speak to how severe those kinds of scenarios could be? Certainly. So I would say, firstly, the best source on uh, agricultural risks from climate change is IPCC Chapter 5. They, they published their big report on the, effectively the risks of climate change with annexes, the details behind this is the summation of the best science behind it. And chapter five shows, based upon different climate scenarios, what the expected threats and losses are and who's likely to be impacted, etc. So in, a, in essence, rising temperatures and climate change in general will be bad for agricultural systems. It's adding volatility, it's shifting, it's knocking farmers you know, the standard conditions they're seeing may be moving away from them. It will be a challenge to manage. The base, based upon average situation, if it was simply the same climate every year, but gradually crawling up 
you know, by one or two degrees, you know, over the decades as climate change evolves, that in itself will be probably manageable. The difficulty, again, is the volatility. If it's suddenly no rain or all your rain at once, that will be where farmers struggle. And especially if it's over many regions, specific regions will need food aid if they're you know, experiencing these problems. It, typically, the World Food Programme does excellent work, but they cannot operate if there's other problems stacked up. For example, loss of infrastructure, uh, conflict, etc. So there can be reasons why this will interact with other risks. So climate change is certainly a concern. And while we're looking at um, the more extreme events in nuclear winter at the moment with our current uh, efforts and research on the paper. Uh, in general, we will be looking at what we would, you know, the, the, the more likely outcome of, say, climate change would be a 10% shock, which could still be resulting in potentially hundreds of millions facing starvation. So these are, these are serious concerns and the world should take, you know, there are steps that can be taken, particularly in this case, this may be less of the kind of solutions we see um, in terms of resilient foods, because, for example, if a crop has failed, that is a cycle of, say, seven months to a year. And by the time you've developed the kind of novel food technologies we're talking about, it may be too late. So this might be local efforts, smaller scale responses, as well as policy. So there's things like animal feed and biofuels ties up a huge amount of our food. And having flexibility in those mandates, such that biofuel mandates can relax in times of high food prices and release the food onto the market. Similarly with animal products, so that we can have it that people's desire for meat doesn't crowd out the poorest for you know their ability to feed themselves. It's steps like that. But this is more where... So just to chart, again, the evolution of all fed, it started out effectively with some people saying there are ways to make food independent of sunlight. We can produce enough food to feed people. And that is a necessary but not sufficient condition to feeding everyone because we produce, depending upon how you measure it, we produce between about 21, uh, we produce enough food to feed about 21-ish billion people. Uh, But not everyone goes fed, even with 7.8 or whatever we're at at the moment. So it's a necessary but not sufficient condition to just produce enough food. So this is where Allfed has been expanding outwards. So, for example, I'm an economist. I was hired by Allfed in um, mid-2021 uh, just to uh, explore some of these issues in more detail. So affordability of food post-disaster. And we're also, for example, as part of this, expanding out and thinking about the more, again, more game-theoretical agent modelling the political systems, etc. Why might people cooperate? Why might it be hard to secure cooperation? Things like this. So there are many different factors expanding outwards in this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fab. I think this has given some like really useful context about what kind of scenarios all Fed is really worried about. And what seems really key here is that these shocks are kind of global in nature so that they can't be smoothed out by trade and that they're like very abrupt so that we can't just mitigate this through more gradual processes like um, adaptation or kind of like incremental uh, like tech advancements and stuff. So let's maybe turn from kind of identifying these problems to how all Fed goes on to model um, kind of evaluating right different solutions or how we can actually yeah like um make sure that that everyone is fed so maybe to begin here can you give us like a very high level view uh about how all fed goes about modeling um i guess on the one side kind of the the demand side so like how many uh calories do we actually need to be uh producing or like other nutrients do we need to be 
um, producing uh, kind of the number of mouths to feed. And then on the other hand, um, yeah, how do we actually go about doing this with our technology and our resources? So uh, how do we kind of like supply this um, with with different technologies or with, with different food supplies? Sure. So firstly, for example, the FAO gives fairly detailed data on who is eating what where. And the global food system is fairly massive. So it's often uh, adjusted onto dry caloric basis. So that is uh, 4,000 kilocalories per kilo. So for example, if a food is 8,000, you would times, you have one kilo of it, that would be times by two. If you have 2,000 kilocalories per kilo, that would be then divided by a half and you'd stack them up. So we have about 4.2 gigatons, so billion tons produced per year of food, uh, human edible. And about 1.9 billion of that is eaten directly by people or goes to people. This is complicated by this uh, figure will be have to be subtracted by retail and household waste. And beyond that, there is also losses in the distribution system, feeding to, which accounts for about 200-ish million tons a year. It varies depending upon different areas, and distribution losses tend to be higher in developing countries because breakdowns in storage and cold chain, whereas retail losses and you know waste it, it tends to dominate in developed countries from the kind of diets they're eating and the uh, the way people eat. But it's approximately uh, around thirty-ish percent is wasted in the system. But then, and about one point four billion tons goes for animal feed. With, and then this is just human edible. So this will be crop meals, grains, various things. So on top of that, you have grasses, residues, etc. And some of that grassland could be growing crops in other systems. So it's it's complicated how you divide it up. But effectively, our, if we look at this system and we trim it down to the absolute bones, so we look at distribution losses. Imagine if we just cut this down to human edible and just what people are eating and just had a much simplified system, you'd simply reduce distribution losses by the lower amount of food flowing through the system. Mm. So if you're, for example, not producing the biofuels, and the biofuels, again, are complicated to estimate, but around 500-ish million tonnes go on other category, which is uh, dominated by biofuels. So if you reduced all these, you could cut down the distribution losses. Retail waste would fall post-disaster from a number of factors. Simply, one of the problems is rising prices is typically what cuts retail waste. And it may be that prices rise to an unaffordable level before waste falls off sharply in the developed world, which again is the problem when you have somebody who can spend $100 a day on food competing with somebody who can spend less than $1 a day on food. So this can be the consumption of the richest can crowd out the poorest. And I guess we we can talk about this in a minute. Mm. But um, effectively, to cut through all these numbers that I've been throwing out, we need about one8 maybe to 2 million or uh, 2 billion sorry tons of food on a dry caloric basis to feed everyone and post disaster in a severe sunlight blocking event we only have about 0.8 per year so this is the kind of deficit so just looking at the demand side this is our problem we need nutritious food not just calories we need protein fat and micronutrients your vitamins and minerals and we need to feed everyone with this including Losses will be reduced, and we could have modelled this in terms of, you know, average when flow through in systems. And we're also looking at projects to reduce this, but for the moment, we're taking it as a given the current systems. But this is our kind of our challenge: how can we produce 
the difference and how can we produce the difference effectively from a standing start? So there are many plausible candidates and this is where, for example, we have on the team all kinds of uh, backgrounds, chemical engineers, mechanical engineers, Mm -hmm. computer scientists, various different people. And they're looking at, for example, what are credible ways to produce food post-disaster from a fairly basic technological level. It has to be scalable, not resource intensive, and it has to be affordable. And so, for example, fundamentally, we're fighting thermodynamics because the sun is a brilliant source of energy. It's there and you know it's, it's for free. It's, it, the actual conversion to calories in the field is only, for example, one or two percent. It's fairly low, but it's, you know, there's so much sun, it's a great source of energy. And that's why it underpins our entire food system. If that is disrupted, we need another source of energy. Mm. And there are potential sources available. So this could be, so just to quickly run over them at a high level, and I guess we'll d- delve into detail. You can produce uh, fats and proteins from hydrocarbons. For example, natural gas can be turned into um, uh, protein via bacteria growing in it. And that's uh, currently even occurs in test beds and is being scaled up to small commercial production currently. Uh, Fats have been produced from, for example, coal and even oil in the past. This is more, we don't have this currently in our model as it's a more, uh, it's difficult to have, you know, to actually be confident this could be done in a disaster and scaled up. But this is another thing being looked into. Sugars can be produced from cellulose, and that is a proven technology that it currently is made into biofuel in small scale, but could be uh, used to make glucose and um, other sugars in a disaster. And for example, there are other uh, technologies such as seaweed. Seaweed can grow quite quickly and can be scaled quite fast. There's some varieties of seaweed that even in a nuclear winter are projected to be able to grow by 10% per day. They're fairly low energy density, and that 10% will then be there's a reason why the ocean isn't covered in seaweed. So that 10% figure will be moderated, for example, by fish eating it back, other factors. But extensive seaweed cultivation could occur, and that won't be feeding everyone, but it will provide a chunk of calories. And again, one of the problems is the seaweed is fairly low energy density in itself, but you could extract potentially some of the nutrients from this, much like fuel. Mm. It may be possible to extract the protein and calories, which seaweed is fairly rich in, including micronutrients. It's, again, it's a food which could have applications in the present day, for example, in dealing with carbon, carbon sequestering, uh, animal feed. There's uh, treatments with seaweed can reduce methane emissions there. And, well, uh, one of the things we can talk about, I guess, in a second is one of the things we're considering is how scalable is this? Can this be scaled in a disaster where, by definition, you are operating in confusion and you know it comes suddenly so one of the things we're looking at is is this technology deployed today is it you know is it human proven to be human edible what is the palatability what is the you know transportability all these other factors and these are one of the uh, factors which one of the streams of research where technology where we believe could be promising but isn't at the stage yet we're looking to move it forwards with commercial partners Mm. so can it be deployed today? Because potentially going from 0% to 1% could be as difficult as going from 1% to 99%. So the initial deployment of these technologies, maybe even in like cellulosic ethanol, it's not necessarily producing food, but it's if it is there and we know it works, we can scale it. Like the seaweed, if it's maybe 
currently seaweed is grown fairly extensively, but typically for, for example, uh, additives, uh, various pharmaceuticals, uh, et cetera, et cetera, there's proposals to use it for carbon sequestering. That will give us the skills and base to grow. Yeah, I was going to ask about this, actually. So when it comes to scaling up these ideas into proofs of concept, um, I'm sure the exact answer depends on the specific ideas. But in general, how are these projects going to be pushed or pulled along? So is it going to be mostly non-profit money for the foreseeable future? Or could some of these things become commercially viable pretty quickly? So some are commercially viable. And so this, for example, single cell protein, which is protein from effectively bacteria grown in either hydrogen or methane is currently seeing small-scale deployments with there is a proposal in Saudi Arabia currently which may or may not get off the ground but there is a, a project potentially launching in Qatar where Qatar is very rich in natural gas but very poor in uh, water and general food security and over concerns around you know being too reliant on imports they're looking for effectively a small niche production of single cell protein to supply aquafeed. So aquafeed is a market where, again, in many cases, you see markets with small niches that need a very specific product that they're willing to pay a significant premium for. For example, aquafeed, then you go down to more you know, bulk uses until finally you hit, you're competing against soybeans, mm-hmm. on which is very difficult. So hopefully the technology can be proven, sit in niches, gain economies of scale. It probably won't displace soybeans ever for these very bulk uses, but it can you know, sit in, particularly the aquafeed market is growing. And Is that basically fish food? Yes. Yes, sorry. Um, and uh, among other things like prawns and sure. yeah, shrimp yeah, and yeah. things. Yeah, I think there's like such an interesting comparison here uh, between, I guess, like kind of old feds, uh, like modeling approach of like global food security. And I think what I often see in kind of like climate change or like kind of energy modeling. Um, so what I mean with with this exactly is right at the very beginning when we're kind of talking about, um, you know, also thinking about what kind of food demand it, it needs to meet. Uh, and then thinks about like, how do we how do we meet this demand by scaling up, you know, different food supplies or like kind of new food technologies and stuff that like echoes really similarly, I think, to thinking about the energy transition where, you know, we've got this like global energy demand that we need to be uh, meeting. And then the transition is about, you know, shifting away from uh, like fossil fuels to, you know, ramping up things like renewables or, or nuclear power or what kind of have you. But, you know, even some of the like kind of sankey diagrams uh, you see as kind of outputs of this just like strikes me as really similar um, as a kind of approach. And then there's this like second interesting comparison, I think, which is about um, how do you kind of fund, uh, you know, new technologies and, and even things that might not be commercially viable now, but that might be really important in the future or that might be like better suited for the world in the future. And I think that's really interesting, too, right, where you had these, I guess, like big pushes for um, you know, moving solar power or like moving nuclear or what kind of have you along, you know, when they really weren't profitable, um, you know, for, for, for decades until, you know, now we're in a condition where it is really important uh, that, that these technologies exist. And that also seems right, kind of somewhat maybe similar to, to what all Fed is kind of calling for here with these these food technologies. And yeah, I don't know. I just I just think it's maybe an interesting comparison. The point you raise on climate change is a very good one, because if much like wind and solar were incredibly niche, very high cost um, sources and have now you know, fundamentally come down just by you know, economies of scale and the investments. It is our hope that potentially this is where seed capital may be needed. Mm-hmm. 100 million investment uh, may be needed for a test bed just to prove the concept. And for, for much like with drugs testing, you need to prove this is human edible or 
even if you're feeding it to animals and fish, you need to prove that the you know it doesn't contain poisons. Which, which and again, there's, this process can be fairly intensive, so it needs investment beforehand to you know get, get these products to market. Yeah, what's the regulatory story when you're trying to? synthesize, engineer a super unfamiliar, more or less entirely new kind of food? This is the thing. So we've chatted with external partners and it can be, for example, breeding new crops can be a very long cycle before going to market, particularly even in Europe, for example, where genetically engineered and genetically modified crops are entirely banned. You have to grow multiple crops, prove that it doesn't, you know, if you bred in a resistance to a certain factor, it's not poison the crop it hasn't disrupted the ecosystem completely it doesn't poison other you know insects that are you you know you're not trying to protect against same for agrochemicals same for so there's a quite extensive process around the whole system so this again is not our specialty it's we you know for example with many of these early technologies we've done research looked at their feasibility and what other people are doing and where possible we'll pass it over and work with commercial partners who will then push it forwards because all fed is you know a team looking at primary research and you know feasibility in these disasters we don't have hundreds of millions or the technical expertise to be running a for example a single cell protein factory in qatar that's not our specialty but yes it is extensive and partially this is why it would be useful again to have all of this done in advance before the disaster because months and weeks will matter once the event occurs. Yeah, I guess one last question on this is, could you imagine these solutions being useful short of one of these big global shocks? Just because uh, you might get local disruptions where, I don't know, for whatever reason, it's hard or expensive to import food and isn't it just generally good to move away from having something close to single points of failure? Yeah, so certainly diversification in the food system makes sense fundamentally. And while we've talked about, for example, animal feed, fish feed, there's no reason why this couldn't, for example, supply uh, synthetic meats. Um, uh, there's no reason why, for example, plant-based meats, etc., couldn't be incorporated uh, Again, it would be a slightly different process. You can grow uh, other, you know, the bacteria, the fungus. uh, There's various things you can grow under these conditions. So Mm. there's no reason why it couldn't be an input to a food system entirely disconnected from animals. So it would be a good idea in general. One of the problems is, so AllFed also looks at simple solutions. For example, leaf protein concentrate. There are ways to grind up leaves and get a you know, calorie, a small amount of protein and calories out of it from the extract. But the problem is these solutions, typically to be efficient, you need to do it at scale and you need to trade and move the product. Like today, where it used to be that 85% of human effort went to producing food, you know, looking over history. Now it's something like 4-ish percent of GDP and that uh, very little of that is the primary food. It's sort of, you know, coffee, cash crops, you know, yeah. cotton, these yeah. kind of things. So it's... Uh, we are we're very good at producing food now but it needs for example the seeds to be potentially the seeds are bred in america are loaded onto a ship moved planted in europe with inputs that are sourced from around the world you know phosphorus and potassium mined in north africa natural gas imported and turned into fertilizer you know machinery imported from around the world and all of this at very low cost can produce wheat for example for 
you know, 150 UK pounds per tonne, and then, you know, moved on to wherever it's needed. So this system is very good at feeding people, but it requires a high degree of specialization and a high degree of cooperation and trade. As soon as that breaks down, even so today, if we ended trade, it would cause a huge food catastrophe. If we ended trade and output was disrupted, it would cause an even worse, you know, the catastrophe would be very severe. And, well, it's complicated. In itself, a collapse of food supplies probably wouldn't hit the existential bar. So the people would survive. It will be very difficult. For example, hunter-gatherers in remote locations would still experience severe shocks from a nuclear winter because... You know, the, the climate around them would be so disrupted, traditional food sources may collapse. It's likely that humans will survive, but potentially it may be existential in terms of either triggering other events yeah. or leading to an irreparable loss of civilization that is very difficult to recover from for other reasons. And if it, for example, locks in bad values, totalitarianism, other things, it may be a very... so. Food is the fundamental. If we can ensure enough food supply post-disasters, it lowers the temperature so much. Got it. Yeah, I guess you could imagine a situation where we do manage to recover fairly quickly on, you know, civilizational timescales, but we recover to a worse place. So maybe there's less trust or less cooperation and so on. And it should be said that, for example, the things we're looking at, the nuclear war, it would be certainly uh, all fed... Even if you prevent people starving afterwards, it doesn't stop a single uh, life or building's worth of battle damage. So the people will, you know, an awful lot of people will still, this will be the most terrible thing to have happened in human history. We're just trying to make sure that the people outside of the direct conflict zones can still feed themselves. Yeah, yeah. I guess one extra question on this topic is, do you have an impression of roughly how long the causes of these shocks to the food supply are likely to last? Like, how long should we expect a nuclear winter to last, for instance? So again, um, the best modelling was the Coop paper, 2019, or the latest modelling, and that was, that approximately said, so it's complicated because the system has some inertia. We have an awful lot of air around us that, you know, and water that, you know, stores heat and releases. So it approximately... The event occurs in year one, and it's modelled as occurring in May. So an injection of 150 teragrams of soot occurs then. This will spread around the world across year one. Year one will see disruptions to its harvests but the, and disruptions to, for example, growth of grass. But we're still seeing, for example, I believe grass is around 60% of yeah. growth typically. But year two and three are the most severe. So that could be 80 to 90% losses of plant growth and from there gradually starts recovering but around year 10 and 11 are approximately back to the start point but and i should say beyond all fed's work in feeding people this would be extremely catastrophic for many ecosystems rainforest for example brazilian rainforest is not designed to take an eight degree shock this would be this would lead to extensive extinction around the world this would be a really huge event yeah i think there's maybe like an interesting ea question here as well right about is it more efficient to try and prevent events like nuclear war in the very first place or do you kind of um just try and mitigate the uh like fallout when uh an event kind of happens 
So I, I would agree entirely that working on reducing nuclear risk is a huge of huge importance and should be, and it certainly is not in any way solved. Uh, All Fed is simply looking at this and the fact that there are other ways this could occur. Mm. At some point in humanity's future, there will be an emission of soot, an emission of you know a sunlight blocking event, and we need to have thought about it in advance. And more minor sunlight blocking events, like we've discussed, have occurred once every three hundred ish years. So mm. they certainly at some point we're going to have to deal with a version of this. If we can survive the worst version, we can probably survive the version that's say yeah, yeah. twenty thirty percent of the worst version. So this is where again I would and stress that. Trying to ensure that nuclear weapons are safe are obviously, you know, that is the key. Yeah. We need to, but as a backstop, we need to make sure if this does occur, we can feed as many people as possible. And hopefully, based on what Allfed is uh, currently calculating and seeing, we have the potential to feed everyone. Yeah, so maybe kind of zooming out and kind of reframing our discussion around these solutions. There seem to be kind of three broad buckets here. One is kind of just building up um, like storage of, of food supplies now. And then, you know, when a disruptive event happens, we can maybe uh, like wait it out or at least uh, kind of give us a, a buffer or a head start. Um, then there is the second bucket of solutions, which you briefly mentioned around kind of efficiency. So at the moment, we're very good at producing food, but, you know, we can do a lot better at making sure that it actually gets eaten uh, and that, you know, there's less food waste or uh, we're just more efficient at, at growing things in the in the first place. And then there's this kind of third, seemingly really big bucket around tech solutions. So these are things you've mentioned like uh, seaweed or cellulosic sugar or these other technologies. And yeah, I'm curious if you can maybe um, yeah give us a, a brief overview or kind of walk us through how important each of these buckets are and how far they kind of get us towards solving this this really big problem of, of global food supply shocks. Certainly. So yes, uh, food storage is a very important uh factor and it's one of the things we look at in detail and particularly food storage varies sharply over the year because for example post-harvest you have quite high storage and you draw it down over the year and in past shocks for example a three percent shock to output may cause a sharp rise in prices or absolutely nothing depending upon the stock level going into the season so stocks are fundamentally what smooths out shocks to the agricultural system Mm. higher stocks are helpful in reducing you know the volatility here but firstly stocks are expensive very expensive and there's been a general trend to destock which there are arguments for and against uh, again covid has partly revealed where running just every supply chain very lean can be very difficult when there are shocks to occur but and food stocks and food having those stocks in place will be the, the buffer that lets us get to the, you know, it gives us the time to bring on the resilient foods, we'd argue, but it will be very difficult for every country mm. to store, just think of shelf life. You'd have to store nutritious foods across every category to cover the entire world's pop consumption for potentially seven years. That is way beyond anything we've ever stored. And so this would be incredibly costly vulnerable to destruction and disruption itself in the war and uh, we feel that while stocks are a vital piece of the puzzle they're unlikely to solve it all on themselves so and some countries do maintain significant strategic stocks for their own security uh, civil protection did this in the u.s uh, during the cold war it's been wound down to a degree and china now has the largest 
largest um, strategic stocks to basically even out food prices internally for their own stability. It may make sense for countries to, even if they're not managing themselves, to get a better idea of where stocks are at because they're surprisingly difficult to measure. Mm. It sounds odd. Traders have good idea about this, or particularly because you know, they make money knowing, for example, if a shock is going to lead to a price rise and evening it out is how traders make their cash. But often governments are surprisingly uh, you know, unsure about the amount of food within their territory. So mm. understanding it better, having civil stocks and so... Again, on a personal basis, this isn't something you can prep for, but like in the pandemic, it's just useful to have, you know, a few weeks worth of consumption, just so if there's a, if you have to, you know, self-isolate or if there's a disruption, you're not going to have to panic. Yeah. And quick aside, I remember when I was reading the the Offit book, there was this kind of interesting anecdote about just how big a prepping culture there is uh, in, in some places, interestingly enough, like around the, the Mormon church and like Costco, uh, even you, you can buy like prepping uh, food for like a whole year and stuff. I, it's it's an interesting thing where I don't, it's not really a credible way of dealing with the overall disaster. Each individual person can't really adopt, you know. And if there is a collapse in trust and society around you, there is very little you can do. And this is the classic problem. For, and it's interesting. For one of the difficulties here in modelling this, we have to go back in history where... Um, for example, if you look back on the decisions made by medieval and you know ancient Roman farmers, they have a real problem in terms of securing themselves against food disruptions because mm-hmm. how do you store enough food? How do you make sure that you know either your own state or other people don't confiscate that food? Yeah. It's very difficult to have a personal solution to this. So while there are some actions you can take of stockpiling some food. In general, it seems unlikely that you would be able to weather a full nuclear winter just based on your own stocks. So this is something where, again, much like we're specialised, you know, at the full agricultural system, we will need to continue to trade countries where, so with a nuclear winter disruption, the tropics will still be able to grow food, mm. but traditional varieties there will be yielding far less. So, for example, spring wheat which doesn't need a frost to, uh, mm. in order to, uh, for its fertilization. So it sounds odd, but the tropics will be cold, but not cold enough potentially to trigger certain life cycles. Yeah. So you'll need specific crops, potatoes, uh, canola, uh, you know, various crops could grow in the tropics. And so they would need to be a transfer yeah. of seeds from the global north and the to the tropics the the, t- uh, the support and expertise would need to come with it large amounts of inputs and this would be it sounds trivial but it certainly is not actually all these diffuse farmers around the world it would be very difficult to convince them to replant at short notice and other things yeah. so these are again issues we're looking at but based upon this we could potentially double the amount of food produced from an outdoor growing system we still would fall short of necessary calorie requirements but this could give us a lot more to work with. You potentially could grow some grasses. You could be feeding cattle, but at a far too low rate to feed your population. And the global north could be doing things, for example, producing industrial foods, seaweeds, etc. But it would be unlikely to be able to feed itself. So this is where global cooperation is needed. And so this is where potentially, depending upon what is damaged, we have, if we are halving our area, we can focus the inputs, all the fertilizer and agrochemicals just on this area. So we could intensively grow this area. And at the moment, Africa is quite light on inputs. 
Uh, but we could push that right up to the you know what crops need you know yeah. the maximal uh, you know the, the optimal rates of fertilizer application yeah, could be yeah. perfectly possible even with assuming though again we haven't checked this in detail our headline calculations seem to indicate there'll be plenty of fertilizer even post-war yeah yeah and again um you know when i was kind of reading the book one of the statistics that really stood out to me um was that i think at the moment we are producing um correct me if i'm wrong like 3.3 gigatons of of food and um yeah if we just kind of accounted for food efficiency and and food waste and the like then we could get this up to 4.4 so really we're like losing almost a a quarter of the food that we're like potentially producing just to to inefficiency and, and waste and the like so yeah, that would be outdoor growing. So that's in terms of crops. So it's kind of complicated because some of those crops are then fed to animals yeah. and then you get animal food out of it. So the, the full system, there's more food, but it's slightly double counting. So it depends on yeah. how you measure it. And that's 3.3 is now up to about 3.7. Yes. So we are looking at what you can squeeze out, but certainly, for example, we are not maximizing yields around the world. And the Green Revolution was a huge part in improving. And so the Green Revolution, this is breeding new varieties and uh, shift in using, for example, fertilizers. Yeah. From the 1960s, fertilizer applications were fairly small. Now they're much higher. I, don't, I can't quote off the top of my head, but I should, I should know this. But yes, um, the, the fertilizer, so for example, th- simple things like Harbour Bosch to be able to produce uh, the, so typically fertilizers are divided into NPK. Yeah. Nitrogen, we have to, produce from the air and you know uh, and combined with natural gas but um uh the uh, p and k we can mine but the n was the problem with that was our our, yeah. our threshold now we can produce nitrogen fertilizers that has unlocked a lot of food but we're still not anywhere close to optimum yeah and these numbers are just absolutely uh, insane to me right we're not really talking about nuclear war or anything here right we're just talking about the the status quo and just how much you know so to say uh, slack there there is in the system right um how much more yield we could be getting out of our crops and just how much food is is being um you know wasted on the on the, on the consumer side too and so reducing consumer waste obviously would be you know of great benefit we should be doing this and just simply Every ton of food produced and wasted is carbon emissions that n- didn't need to occur uh, and various other factors. It in itself probably won't end world hunger. The difficulty is world hunger is a complicated, it, partially due to affordability, mm. and it would help to a degree with affordability if less food was wasted, but it can also be due to breakdowns in infrastructure and yeah. local conflict. It's, it's a complicated issue, but reducing waste would be vital, but even if we cut waste to zero, we wouldn't be able to feed everyone post-disaster. Yeah. We need these resilient foods to scale up to support outdoor growing. We need to maximise outdoor growing, but it seems unlikely we'd be able to produce enough food from this. So this is where the cellulosic sugars, the seaweeds come in. Um, this might be going a bit far off piste, but you mentioned Harbour Bosch. And I kind of want to hear you say more about that because it strikes me as this massively underrated uh, invention. Yes. No. I, again, I, I, it sounds very. It, very few people realise how important Harbour Bosch is, and it was initially developed for reasons other than fertiliser. It was basically to spy ammonia for the chemical industry, but um, Harbour Bosch being the catalytic process where you produce uh, ammonia and then you can produce yeah, urea, other fertilisers. And it fundamentally allowed us to access energy far beyond what... So a certain amount of nitrogen is fixed every year 
just deposited from the atmosphere by bacteria. Some crops are nitrogen fixing, so encourage bacterial growth in their roots, which is basically a beneficial ecosystem for everyone. Bacteria get fed, the crop gets more nitrogen, but that can only go so far. So this is crop rotations where you rotate legumes, etc. But legumes don't produce as many calories per hectare themselves, and you kind of maxed out on this, or we had maxed out on this. So prior to Harbour Bosch, we were the level of you know every uh, possible source of nitrogen was collected and brought back to the point where human waste was collected from cities america seized a load of islands in the middle of the pacific for guano the bird shit just to make sure that they had supplies to mine this for fertilizer and other applications but um yeah so harbor bosch fundamentally uh changed the game in terms of and freed us from this so it's hard to precisely estimate it, but um, Vaclav Schmil, and I'd recommend his book um, completely called Energy and Civilization, mm. which is sort of how effectively energy limits in various regards have gated us, and an awful lot of our technology is simply working out how to crack these. But for example, based upon deposition, you know, atmospheric and uh, rotation and manure, uh, we could only feed about 60% of our current population with our current area. So we'd have to radically increase our area and Harbour Bosch covers the remaining 40%. It's, and that evening is fairly, opt- you know, there would be further disruptions potentially. So Harbour Bosch and maintaining this nitrogen flow. And I should say it's something like one-ish percent of one to two percent of natural gas use. It's not, it is possible to have a world with nitrogen fertilizers and be carbon neutral yep. if you have carbon capture on the other side. And it's likely to continue long into the future. Yeah, yeah. But and it just fundamentally and it it's often seen like agriculture is quite static i.e there's people you know plowing the fields like they did 300 years ago the truth is entirely different for example yields have gone up tenfold in many developed countries you have where it might be a hundred people farming a field it's now one you have varieties entirely changing uh, resilience being bred in various you know desirable characteristics working with fertilizer applications and pesticides and these can have downsides but the latest in farming uses precision techniques where you are only applying exactly what each plant needs potentially directly on each plant with your field mapped there are automation technologies which are you know really rising in this area particularly in places where land is very expensive tight northwest europe so it sounds odd, but you know, Britain is in fact more productive in most years at growing sugar per hectare than Brazil. Mm-hmm. There are the system is you know there are significant advances breeding new um, crop development and also, for example, products that again like we were talking a while ago about bees. There are a move away from fertilizer uh, pesticides, sorry, that harm bees. And, you know, new products being developed, it, it, a better understanding of how, you know, this environmental system is being impacted. And of course, farming has negative effects, but we're understanding these better and managing them. So yeah, yeah, yeah. farming as a system is, in fact, moving quite fast. And it is interesting to see. But a lot of the world, this hasn't really arrived in Africa yet for a number of reasons, including just marketability of crops, land rights, um, property rights, these various factors, ability, access to credit, disruptions from climate. There are many factors why the Green Revolution hasn't really taken off in Africa mm. to the same degree. Though there is change and Africa is you know, growing and it's interesting just 
personally, I was in Tanzania 10 years ago and I went back, you know, recently and you can physically see the change with your eyes. It is, there is movement. And this is one of the things that offers hope with climate change that you know, we can get a lot more out of the ground while potentially being more environmentally friendly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's an Our World in Data page which shows things like agricultural yields uh, by area and per person over time. And it's just wild. I had no idea how much progress we'd made there. Yes, it is fascinating, particularly how, um, you know, the actual area needed to feed a person has been dropping quite sharply. For example, between about 1980 and uh, 2000, the area under crops stayed constant, despite billions more people being added. Yeah, I guess if there's a lesson there, it's something like, there's no strong reason to expect we'll run into hard constraints, like, you know, resource or land constraints, uh, in order to feed more and more people on Earth. Exactly. And this is the point where it's not guaranteed because it may be a situation where the poorest still structurally can't afford food, but there's no fundamental reason by the laws of physics we cannot feed 10 billion people on this planet. Yeah, like one interesting point that I kind of want to go back to on the kind of the efficiency savings uh, and the like is you mentioned that there's kind of double counting going on, right? Where we are growing crops to feed animals, which we then in turn uh, eat ourselves and that this is, you know, inefficient from like a, a calorie point of view. And this is really, right, a message that we've heard in like previous interviews with folks from the Good Food Institute and kind of topics around like animal suffering, climate change and how vegetarian or like vegan diets uh, feed into that and yeah i'm just curious like what all feds kind of take is on this or how yeah this this question of uh eating meat versus like not eating meat uh fits into this conversation of nuclear fallout um global food security questions and and the like animals uh, are fed on all kinds of inputs <clears throat> so traditionally it used to be for example that cows would graze and sheep would graze on land where you couldn't really grow crops. Yeah. So it was a way of you know, increasing efficiency. And you'd have pigs and chickens to recycle you know, food that had gone off or you know, residues and waste and these various things. So it was a much more independent of you know, the whole should we eat meat story. It was efficient for the food system. Yeah. However, demand for meat radically exceeded these factors over the last few decades. And this has led to a huge growth in effectively feed-based systems where human edible food primarily maize and soybeans which is effectively maize is the cheapest way to produce calories and soybeans are the cheapest way to produce protein so those are why they're typically fed to cattle and these are starting to so it's difficult it depends on how you exactly measure it but approximately by my calculations about 1.4 billion tons of food that could be human edible on a caloric basis is fed to animals each year so dry caloric and this, in turn, animal products out the other end is about uh, 500-ish million, uh, million tons. But then that's including all the residues and, you know, yeah. systems fed. So I can get the exact calculations. I don't have them to hand. But there is high inefficiency in the system. So typically, for example, with meat, you are probably putting about 20 calories in for, for a cow for every one calorie you get out. Yeah, yeah. Fish are far more efficient because they float and um, cold-blooded so they have a much better conversion ratio pigs and chickens are in the middle so this is from the point of view of a human food system this is very wasteful we're putting a lot more area under crops compared to what we need this however is in it is a little bit more complicated in a disaster Mm. because in a disaster what we want is a buffer so imagine two worlds one where 
we grow double the amount of crops we need because we're feeding them to animals, and one where we only grow the amount of crops needed by humans. Mm. Then we shock it by 10% in each case. Potentially the one with the animals is easier to deal with because we can cut feed to animals and transfer it onto them. We have the slack in the system. We can destock, you know, and then restock afterwards when there's more food. And then humans wouldn't have to take the brunt. So there are so it gives us a buffer in the disaster. However, I should say there is a world where, for example, we've cut back on animal products. We've cut the area under crops, which would be very good for biodiversity. And other steps have been taken to build resilience into the system. And this would have saved us a lot of money anyway into the system in terms of costs. Some of that surplus, if it's reinvested into resilience, could easily cover the benefit of having these extra animals. So animals are very inefficient when you're feeding them uh, just human edible food, this grain. The feedlots, as a, you know, calories in versus calories out, you get a slight... um, it can have a benefit in terms of the types of protein, but typically even protein you make a loss mm. and you get a slight benefit in terms of fat production, but there are other ways of doing this. So there is concerns and interesting uh, points around the modeling, but there are credible ways to um, deal with the, the lower production of, for example, crops mm. in line with the lower production of animal products could be dealt with from a food systems point yeah. of view. And currently, in fact... This, the argument of animals providing the buffer uh, probably doesn't even apply today. This is in a more ideal world. Currently, the buffer has fallen on the poor as well as animals. Mm-hmm. So, for example, right. prices for animal. If you, for example, raise the price of feed, imagine beef goes up by 30 40%. Yeah, yeah. That doesn't necessarily cut beef demand enough for the poorest to cope. And this is one thing where we haven't done the full modeling yet. We're linking to... This is a follow-up paper that we're going to try and look at. Personally, this will be the paper I'll lead on where we're trying to look at, for example, just elasticities in food systems around affordability. So as we reduce, like we were saying, um, providing enough food for everyone is a necessary but not sufficient constraint. If we produce a certain level of food, what would we expect prices to do just yeah. broadly? It's going to be very... So general equilibrium modelling, which looks at the whole economy as much as possible, everything, investment decisions, etc., tends to break around even smaller versions than what we're trying to do. It'll be very difficult to run a general equilibrium model. And general equilibrium modeling, it, it has its place in economics. It can be difficult. There was a black box yeah. because you put a lot of assumptions in and something comes out. And some of those assumptions matter hugely. So it can be a bit difficult to work out what's going on. And in our modeling, that can be a real problem. Mm-hmm. So we probably can't do a full general equilibrium, but we can at least bound the problem and say prices won't be below this or probably can't be above this. Mm. And we can understand, for example, why prices might be higher than the level. So in our first paper, we're looking at pure affordability. So that's how much does it cost to produce and a small return on capital, depreciation, etc., so that the system can maintain its you know, level of output and then move it to people mm. and then the retail premium. So we can look at all this and say, Based upon these and the kind of foods we are, you know, looking and think are possible to produce, it may cost, for example, around 53 cents per day to get minimum calories, mm. about 67 cents per day to get sufficient nutrition, and about a dollar a day for the average basket diet. So this is broadly affordable 
for many people but won't be affordable for everyone. So this is, for example, even at 67 cents per day, and the FAO classes of affordability at about um, 63% of the diet, max, oh, sorry, the, the income maximum spent on food because you have to buy other things. Mm-hmm. And even that would put, you know, extreme pressure on households. About 1.2-ish billion people couldn't afford that threshold. So those people will need subsidies and support, and this will almost certainly need international transfers. So these desire, these foods aren't... And so, for example, there are other ways of producing food. So there's artificial light, but that costs orders of magnitude above what we're looking at. So the, the point being, these are not only have to be physically capable of being produced post-disaster, mm. they have to be produced at low cost and sufficient quantity to feed people. But this affordability forms like the lower bound. The, then the problem is... For example, is it that animal feed is outcompeting the humans there? Mm. And in the medium to long run, this would encourage supply to increase because if your your price is above your cost, people would invest. But we don't have time to get to equilibrium. The short run equilibrium can kill people because if you know, and particularly, this is where we get into problems of almost certainly we'd have government rationing and you know, support, but governments would also have to cooperate internationally to try and stop, you know. Uh, a beggar my neighbor policy and we would need some uh, we can look at different scenarios and this is where we're looking at for example biofuels would at what point would biofuels switch off on current mandates would we need policy for them to switch off would it just make not no sense to turn food into fuel anymore actually did you want to say something about what those biofuel mandates are certainly so effectively biofuel mandates were brought in for a few reasons partly to try and bring in energy independence for countries that didn't have oil but also to support farmers and this is fundamentally as a way of meeting transport needs they are insufficient they will never meet full needs but you can supply some of your own uh, internal needs by basically either growing calories which you then turn into uh, you ferment into alcohol for ethanol fuel or you produce oil so vegetable oils which can then turn into biodiesel and typically that is maize, uh, rapeseed slash canola for the oils or palm oil. And there's other niche. So for example, oh, sorry, sugarcane is also a big one for ethanol, cassava, quite niche. Um, so these are often policies to support agricultural incomes. And partly they were also brought in because it's during a long period when uh, the yields were outstripping the need for crops. Crop prices were very, very low. Because you fundamentally didn't need the market, you know, was sending a switch off signal saying we have too much maize. So the US government stepped in and found a use for it. Because, but so this is partly tied to voters and, you know, the importance of agricultural lobbies. But this has led to about 500 million uh, for other, which 80 to 90% of that total will probably be biofuels. It's difficult to exactly break it down, but yeah. So it's a significant source of demand. And in the past, there has been a problem. For example, the 0708 crisis, a food price crisis, was partially caused by fuel prices rising and pulling food prices along with them. Because fundamentally, you've connected these two markets. Mm. Oil pulls up maize, and maize competes with other crops in a rotation. So if the price of maize is very attractive, that pulls up other crops to compete with it. Farmer has a choice of what they plant. And in fact, most farmers rotate, so they can't plant the same crops in the same area multiple years. So... It, everything moves together. So you've connected agricultural markets to oil. Yeah. 
having a policy break here would be very sensible. And some countries have it to a lesser or greater degree. We would argue, and in fact, one of the things all Fed is pushing on is that this should be universal. So in fact, there is a world where biofuel is food security positive. Again, it gives you a buffer. It gives you a large amount of food you're producing. And if this food is, not all of it is directly human edible. It's not like we can all live on, uh, you know, you can't all only live on palm oil, uh, sugar cane and maize. And many of this maize is more like feed maize than, you know, very palatable directly, but it is edible by humans. It's just, you know, not the same maize we have on our plates. But this, you know, if released, if when food prices are pulling up or oil prices are pulling up, there's a natural either drop in the subsidy or break in the mandate, buyouts, various things, where this can be farmer positive because the farmers are still getting high prices for their crops. The whole point is this is in high food prices. The farmer doesn't care whether it goes to a ethanol plant or a you know someone's plate but so there are policy wins here and but at the moment biofuel could be a negative to food security where we hope it can be a positive sorry just to get clear on what's going on here then so currently a bunch of governments have mandates for farmers to turn some of their crops into biofuel and then the governments will subsidize that typically the slightly crazy economics of this is typically the cost of the inputs is higher than the value of the outputs so you're turning something into something less valuable Uh, so this requires subsidies to do or it requires something called a blending mandate. So imagine a fuel producer is forced to put 2%, say, bioethanol into their fuel. And in fact, this is fairly common. Um, If you look on the pumps, they often have the blending rate uh, on there in terms of the E2, E5 is the ethanol percentage. So, and in in small quantities, again, this is good for engines. They provide benefits to cars. Anti-knocking doesn't matter. But um, the... These mandates give guaranteed markets for sales, but the point is they are entirely price insensitive. If you're only blending a small amount, the size of the fuel market radically eclipses the, f- the food. So it can drag food, whatever, and pull, and potentially if oil prices are rising, if it pulls it up, this can drag, while oil prices are influencing, you know, costs of production for crops in other ways, raising fertilizer costs, raising you know the costs of your tractors and everything else. It's also raising the price of maize and other things. So this can be very bad for the system. So I guess when oil prices go up, fuel prices go up, uh, I'm a farmer, suddenly it's more attractive for me to grow and sell a larger share of my crops for biofuel uh, even though, as you said, the cost of the inputs still outweighs the uh, price or cost of the outputs. Yes, indeed. And it's not really, again, overall, if we sw- if we were trying to grow all biofuels for our vehicles, it wouldn't. There are some arguments for it providing a niche benefit and some diversification. It's not a credible way to produce. Yeah, yeah. This is maybe a, another conversation Um Personally, this does sound like maybe these mandates exist for, let's say, dubious political reasons. Um, But anyway, in the case where oil prices go up and then I therefore grow more biofuels uh, and my crops get bought by these subsidies, it sounds like now the price of the food portion of my crops has got to go up also. Yes, it's certainly the food portion would have to bid its way up as well. It would have to equal what the biofuel is offering for. And the capacity of the biofuel plant, the biofuel plant in the normal year may be underutilized, so it could pull far more in. So it's, again, this can 
happen in some cases. But governments have taken steps uh, to partially break this link and try and have, for example, okay, so you have to blend at a certain rate. You have to blend, say, 2% of your fuel or pay a fine. In some levels, if the food price has gone up very high, it's cheaper to pay the fine than blend. And that's the point of the fine. It's just saying, you know, so there are steps that can be taken and these can be, again, so we have to, one of the things in All Fed is we're not only working in the physical, like what can physically be done, but also what can be, what is the political and economic reality. So we need it. And for many other reasons as well, we don't want we, we don't want these policies to be harming farmers. We want to build resilience while being politically popular. Mm. And biofuel mandates still being present but able to be relaxed seems to be a clear win there. And so, just to get clear on the upshot there, when there is a big shock to the global food supply, it seems bad that these mandates continue in their current state. And the idea is that maybe there are win-win proposals for making those mandates more flexible and relaxing them in that case, or at least committing to do so. Yes, indeed, indeed. And we would hope, certainly in a very severe disaster like the nuclear winter, mandates would relax very quickly. But it would be, you know, where one month of them continuing could consume big chunks of food, you know, the faster they relax, the better. Got it. And so let's agree on this in advance. Let's get this in advance. Everything that can be done in advance should be done in advance. Got it. Cool. I guess now we're talking about the political and economic aspects of your research. So, yeah, one question is, what do you expect the ballpark labour requirements to be in these kind of close to worst case scenarios when we are switching a lot of effort into producing these alternative foods? It's difficult. Um, It's very difficult to calculate Uh, just simply because it does depend on the technologies and what is available. uh, We will be farming potentially a smaller area, but we will be trying to get as much out of that area as possible. So there may be a fairly large redeployment uh, of labour just to provide, for example, hands in fields, unskilled labour to pick crops, make sure. For example, at the moment when you do a pass with a harvester, it doesn't make sense. For example, potatoes. You may leave 10% of the potatoes in the field, yeah. but that, you know, it's not worth paying someone to go around and pick them all up. Now it might be. So there'll be factors like this. Seaweed might be more labour-intensive. It's difficult to put an exact number on, uh, as, just as this is my area, and um, David would know far more about this because he's looked into it. I would guess, you know, a sig- there would be significant deployments, but it wouldn't be everyone we would still be conducting other activities, maybe 20 to 30% of, you know, workforce is being pulled into this. I guess a related question is, um, so, okay, we have some range of solutions. You've got seaweed and digesting cellulose, um, also just moving existing crops to more fertile areas. And you're going to end up with some kind of portfolio, some mix of all of those things. Have you thought about how that mix might be timed? As in, are some of these things better to go for early and others better later? This is the thing. So the current paper we're working on is effectively an integrated model of everything, looking at, for example, how fast can things scale? Are they competing for area and resources? Once they're online, do they have a lag? So, for example, once you plant a field, you need to wait you know, a certain period before the crops are ready to be harvested. So all these things combine together. So 
we would be trying, particularly for low-tech solutions where there's no competition for the inputs, we would be trying to maximize them effectively immediately as soon as possible. So seaweed can be frames and ropes. So that's fairly straightforward. Again, the technology, like production of rope, fiber, spinning, all these other things would be, you know, ramped up as fast as possible, but we don't think there'll be any particular restriction there. And we can probably get, you know, significant seaweed output, you know, by month six so that we can start to feed people on this. And then similarly, we have cellulosic plants um, would need to be, there are certain, you know, effectively the engineering teams have looked into, you know, how easy is this in the past with emergency production? You know, how fast can you do these things? It may take more time, may take less. And we are running one of the things we're going to look in the papers in Monte Carlo, looking at various scenarios, high, low, how does this impact the number of people fed? Mm. Because effectively the model then assigns stocks to even out the consumption. So in an optimal scenario, what is the effectively maximizing the minimum? So the, all of these will be arriving at different points in time and we will be you know, trying to produce as much food as possible. But we think based upon this, we can bridge, you know, stocks will provide us enough food in order to have the resilient food come online. Can you maybe also talk about what does a typical diet in this kind of world look like, right? We've talked a lot about these uh, tech and like tech solutions, but how does that kind of feed in uh, into like an overall diet? Like what would you imagine uh, people would be eating uh, in, in this kind of world? And I think I'll also flag kind of at this point that for listeners who are like more interested in this kind of like tech and, and tech solution side, um, then there's like a great ATK episode that we'll kind of link to that delves a lot more deeper into into this kind of aspect. But yeah, I'd, I'd be like super keen to hear kind of an overview of this uh, from from you, Mike. Yeah, so a, a simple diet could be, for example, uh, wheat and barley would still be uh, able to be grown, combined with uh, some rapeseed oil, so potentially bread could still be made, uh, and you know you can fry some things simply, but um, it would be a little bit of cellulosic sugars, uh, but probably about ten percent of your diet from that maximum, a uh, bit of seaweed, potentially ten percent of the diet. Uh, seaweed can have problems for example iodine you could have it in too much quantity so uh, 10% has been done in the past for example off the coast of Japan people had about 10% of their diet seaweed so we're setting that as a, you know, even if we produce lots of seaweed we wouldn't go above that number but there may be technologies particularly if we could do extracts and make it almost like a flour uh, it could be high in protein and you know have the iodine brought down to sensible levels so a diet of a somebody at a lowish level of income would be wheat and barley, some cellulosic sugar, some seaweed, a little bit of oil, and that would provide calories, fat, protein. A slightly higher level of income could include some dairy products because we'd still be trying to produce similar levels of dairy to today, just because dairy is a much more efficient way of using our residues. So we would try and divert as much grass and, you know, uh, fodder crops which the north could still produce even if they are unable to grow grow wheat and a little bit of the residues from the agricultural systems it's likely there will be a disruption to this to a degree but with a significant dairy could still be produced and maybe small amounts of meat but far less than today Mm -hmm. that would be a you know the diet for someone on a higher level of income but again there will be cultivation of vegetables mixed in with this particularly in the tropics, people would have you know, vegetable gardens still. There would be some beans and legumes mixed in. So 
it would be a simple diet, but again, effectively, again, it sounds odd, but looking back through history, it would be approximately diets of, you know, standard peasant diets in medieval times. Small amounts of meat, but, you know, sort of special-ish occasions, some dairy, some mostly grains and beans. Yeah. This is just occurring to me, so maybe it's stupid, but presumably it is now possible and potentially quite easy to stockpile not just bulk calories but also seasoning and spices and you know more fun kinds of food yes and so there is a proposal in fact all fed are looking at this and we are one of the things is once we've done this modeling it will inform in itself it it is not sufficient to solve the problem we can't get for example government cooperation will be still very difficult but having this model can let us see ah there may be a key resource which we didn't consider so for example certain seeds may be in very short supply seed potatoes we probably couldn't have enough for the full area we'd need in the first year so we'd scale them in other crops that are less efficient potatoes give you lots of calories per hectare but require more inputs in terms of time and effort but we'd have plenty of time and effort so it may be maximizing calories per hectare is what we're optimizing Mm -hmm. so but you know having the, enough seeds certain you know uh, plans in place potentially certain inputs that could be useful in other systems could be very useful and like you say potentially herb, you know spices and other things could be yeah interesting um i basically have a bunch of questions about the politics of all of this and maybe one is something you mentioned right at the start when you're talking about problems you're currently thinking about and that is under some very large shock we are assuming that countries will be able to cooperate by um for instance the uk could send a bunch of potato seeds to some area of the tropics with a promise of getting some something back from that and that's a kind of cooperation across time you can imagine that requires uh, no small amount of trust right so can we be sure that things will pan out that way Indeed. You've hit the nail on the head with the time delay may be the key problem in ensuring cooperation, particularly if the tropics, for example, have lower food stocks, require seeds and fertilizers and the inputs from the global north, and then in turn, they will grow the food. You produce far more food with all these inputs than the global north could ever do within their own territory. There has to be trust that it would be returned. And ensuring this cooperation over the multi-periods. So, for example, do you devote effort within your own territory where you have control or do you try and cooperate and support? This is, we believe there are things that can be done here. This certainly has occurred in the past. It was much, you know, modern systems, you know, trade, finance, etc. The ways that we solve this today with contracts and contract enforcement and all this other thing may degrade rapidly because, you know, mm-hmm. fine, I can promise you I'll pay you in dollars and you'll pay me back in dollars in the future. But what if, you know, nobody trusts that a dollar is going to have value? This is a, it is a very difficult system. We haven't got the answer yet. There are particularly countries which have cooperated and traded and have close relations in the past. You can form pairings. For example, US, Canada, Mexico mm-hmm. forms quite a neat block. Brazil can do a lot on its own, but can do more with extra support. So Brazil pairing with the EU. And there are um, trade, you know, trade links there. They're not strong enough yet, but there are potentially links that can develop. And this is partly where partnering countries and pairing, and then, so it sounds like we're initially looking at this in terms of our 
first integrated model is a global system assuming full cooperation. That's obviously yeah. an abstraction. But uh, from this, we can start to pick out countries which are uniquely vulnerable or countries that are uniquely well positioned if they just had a bit of support. Mm. So we can start to form partnerships saying, mm. ah, you know, this and this together could. And so the idea would be these could partner up you know, beforehand have plans in place, even modest shocks, they could benefit from cooperation around this. And then hopefully from this, we can expand the plan outwards, build up trust, build up cooperation and maintain it simply because one of the key things for cooperation is people have to trust there will be enough produced. And this is the other factor, which is we are... Some of the modelling we're looking to do on the economics is imagine if you didn't trust or you severely discounted any food that isn't currently produced. You say, okay, so this harvest is going to arrive, but we have no idea if it's going to be half its level. So I'm going to only assign a 50%, you know, high discount factor on this. And then how will decisions form? This will result in very short-term thinking, hoarding of food, and then this can rapidly spiral. And so we're looking to model this. We're looking at history where it's happened, history where it hasn't happened, extreme scenario and this is one of the difficulties because we haven't had just with the global food system you know in the advances these events we haven't had our current system stressed to this level Mm. and we're not sure what will happen but this is where we are thinking and we are looking to again this is where we're looking to develop our thinking on this yeah so when we're thinking about these cascades or downward spirals of trust where you get more and more hoarding or import bans and tariffs and so on I'm curious if there are really good examples of this happening from history. COVID, I guess, not being a major example. Exactly. COVID was a small-scale example that was broken fast. There have been... It was fairly common in the past for export bans to be put in place if people... Well, sorry, if countries and you know governments are concerned about their access. 0708 was probably the most recent example where... Again, it was a fairly minor production shock combined with this the factors around biofuels. And it's interesting, there are actually still debates raging about whether what actually caused this because it was a complicated multi-crop impact that occurred over you know a few crop cycles. It's difficult to exactly pin it down to a few factors, but these certainly were key. Fallen output of certain crops, spike in price from the biofuels led to particularly, for example, the Philippines... Uh, importing more food, more rice, to try and ensure their own supply. And then this leading to jitters, um, restrictions from India, various things, and then a cycle. So typically it goes, there has been an event which has triggered concern. A country looks to secure its own supply and exporters look to, you know, uh, ensure. Because, so, just very quickly on prices, there's sort of two price benchmarks that you can think of, which is export parity, which is world market prices minus the cost of exporting to the world market, and import parity, which is world market prices plus the cost of getting it to you. So importers have higher prices than exporters. And if you're an importer, you're kind of at the mercy of the world market. What You know, you have to buy at their prices. So you may want to quickly scramble and grab yeah. food. And then if you're the exporter, you have more options. You can disconnect yourself. The world price rising will start pulling up your domestic prices for your urban consumers unless you disconnect it which is an export ban. And that in turn has, you know, it it leads to a negative sum game where you're causing problems around the world. And this in the past, again, speculation, if traders are expecting certain policies to occur in the future, they may hold on to food and expectations. 
and it's very difficult to you know once this gets starting to break it so it needs partially export bans need to be uh, countries need to step away from export bans and have other ways of managing their food security which is difficult and so for example futures contracts which is a way of trading food or markets they allow people to manage risk but they can't really help in this situation because if an export ban comes into effect yeah. then it just invalidates your contract okay. if say you're trading with a country mm. you know so you may say well i have a contract that entitles me to indian rice but if something called force majeure has been declared which is you know outside circumstances beyond your control the contract is void so you may have bought insurance that on the moment you wish it for it to pay out it has not it has no value to you so fundamentally this requires government commitments around it and it should be said so for example in the past the eu the early 2000s the eu put partial export bans because they were concerned about price rises mm-hmm. now the eu does the precise opposite campaigns against them makes commitments to never put export bans in and releases stocks when you know the markets look jittery it's possible to have changes on these and there are ways to manage food security for your urban poor even for a country like india without using export bans so this would just allow people to again it's almost like the set, you know, like with a bank run if you're confident that the central bank can bail out the you know yeah. It, it's a different so if you're confident that the futures contracts won't be invalidated you can trust you know you can still trade and manage your risk and everyone can look at the market and you know they can release stocks they can you know it's open and futures markets can be a source of volatility or they can be a source of stability so there are and these are interestingly so this is technology entirely separate from say seaweed production <laughs> yeah. this is and it sounds odd but the industrial revolution for example was driven as much by technological innovations around companies and it, it was driven by muscles of debt as much as muscles of coal and these it sounds odd to consider them technologies but they are in most definitions of the term and technological developments here on the policy world yeah. could be very very useful for yeah. disasters both large scale in terms of the nuclear winter that we were just discussing, or you know smaller, you know smaller factors like you know your five percent shocks, your ten percent shocks, yeah, these yeah. would be a key part of ensuring. And this is the thing where indeed in our in our responses we are envis- like we're expecting envisaging a huge role for the private sector. We're expecting something along the lines of a hybrid economy, similar to, for example, in many wartime situations where the government steps in, provides rationing for its population, and will then go to private sector companies and say, every tonne you produce of this, we will pay this price. You sort it out. Mm. And, you know, provide potentially... And in turn, the government might be having work schemes to say, if you wish to work, we will pay anyone to do this labour, you know, to mobilise workforces, to link useful projects to forces of stocks of labour. Potentially there may be government directly taking control of certain aspects, mm. but there's highly likely that the private sector, and we'd want the, the people who know how to grow crops best are farmers. We are not going to go around and tell farmers these things. You know, we're not telling them literally what to plant. But the point is, this will be a very weird situation for farmers. They need information. They need to know, you know, this is what the climate is going to do. If you put maize in the ground, the conditions today are fine. Seven months, it will be frozen. It will die. We need to get wheat in the ground now. So talking, you know, with giving support, giving extra finance, unlocking, 
you know, but it certainly won't be, a, you know, a command system where the state is telling, you know, seizing every farm and telling people what to grow. Yeah. That is the precise opposite. We're trying to use individual initiative combined with, you know, the planning and advice yeah. and, and policy needed. Well, it's probably also the case, right, that as much as Alfred's work is useful in kind of like predicting, you know, future scenarios and what there might be, there is presumably just also just an insane amount of uncertainty still about what will actually happen, right? If there is a uh, there's this huge kind of global um, shock to food supply and what kind of causes this. So you probably want to have a lot of like experimentation going on, right? And not be very prescriptive in what farmers have to do, right? But let people experiment kind of on their own and then see what, what works and what ends up being uh, economical and, and what doesn't. Exactly. And there we can model this as much as we can, but there will be things we will miss. There will be friction as the plan develops. Every plan suffers from this so we need it to be able to fail gracefully Mm -hmm. that is one of the factors and the more effectively the more resilient foods we can find that are credible the more research we can do to prove they're credible and build capacity beforehand the more slack we have and the more that can go wrong while still people are fed and that's the fundamental issue where yeah we need this surplus to feed through and we need as well as the policy to be there so that it's affordable and you know cooperation can be maintained i guess this points to a set of questions to close off this conversation which are questions about what we can do now along practical or policy lines to put us in a better prepared place um you mentioned advanced commitments around biofuel mandates and i guess the other one you just mentioned if I'm hearing you right, is, well, maybe we could spend a bunch of resources to scale these things up and test them out and just get a load of valuable information from doing that, if nothing else. I mean, in the terms of certain uh, budgets, this would be fairly small amounts of money. Probably the order of magnitude is approximately 10 to 100 million for US dollars to launch a test project pilot for industrial foods to and then once that's complete and if that works then you're ready for commercial and the private sector can take over so this might be where public private partnerships could be of great benefit and particularly just maybe even a proven technology but scaling it seaweeds seeing you know how fast you can switch seaweeds from varieties because you may want, wish to for example cultivate commercial varieties today mm-hmm. and switch to food varieties in the future just testing so that okay fine they seem to work in you know th- these things work in you know greenhouse type conditions in inverted commas do they work when we actually you know when we chuck them off the coast of the uk yeah. does it perform like there's no reason why it should perform lower than say where you know where they are today but yeah. is there something weird that we haven't considered you know and so just doing this in advance could have huge benefits for not too much money. And so there is benefits for seed capital here, but this is where all feds, you know, we're thinking of ways this can be done and we have a list of projects that we're pushing forwards and we try and push them forwards to this stage. But this is where we're looking for external partners and particularly for the public-private partnership. It might be a government looking to partially fund it alongside an industry where they're interested in this in the present day or, you know, other options so there there are you know there's there's ways this is moving forward already there's ways it can certainly move forward faster with a bit of support yeah are there any example projects you want to highlight there yeah so one thing in particular so there's um well two things to highlight i guess would be single cell protein which is the production of protein from uh, natural gas mm-hmm. it would be great to see more test plots here and seeing you know 
just as this develops, but this is already occurring to a degree, but more locations would be interesting and just trying to get this integrated into commercial systems. But one of the really interesting possibilities that was, in fact, the initial research done by some people at Allfed, mm. whose yeah, work was very interesting, was so cellulosic sugars. You can convert a cellulosic ethanol plant quite quickly because all you're doing is taking out the last step where you ferment the sugar into ethanol. But imagine you're trying to scale it. What you need is a way of producing a load of wood pulp and then using enzymes to crack it and break it down. So you have 80% of the capital in a paper mill. So a paper mill is gets you almost there. And funny enough, we would still need paper and cardboard post-disaster for various uses, but we would, you know, there's significant surpluses. And at the moment, there's some paper mills which are struggling because, you know, cardboard is in high demand, physical paper in low demand. So there's a bunch of idle paper mills. And this is where, for example, we'd be looking to partner and and be very interested in just, there's a small amount of capital which you would add to the end where you could have effectively either diverting into paper or into cellulosic ethanol, or take out the last step, cellulosic sugar. So you may have, and this is where the economics will need to sit down and calculate, but certainly post-disaster, we, this would make a lot of sense to do financially. Mm-hmm. And we'd firstly be, the test would firstly be working out how fast can we integrate this, how practical is it to integrate this final you know, 20% of the capital into the production process to produce the sugars. And the next stage is, is it commercially viable to do this? Cellulosic ethanol at the moment is struggling because oil prices are low. There may be niches for it. It's difficult to do. But if you have a paper mill, so in Brazil, almost all sugar mills produce either sugar or ethanol, and they can divert between the two. Mm -hmm. In fact, they produce both at the same time, and they have maybe like, they can go 60%, 40% and flex between the two. So depending upon which price is higher, they adjust. And you could potentially have a paper mill doing the same, where it's a paper mill when prices of paper are worth it, when if prices of paper are below the you know other uses, you then divert it into cellulosic ethanol. Mm. And then in the disaster, you have the capacity to produce and the knowledge and scalability that can then be applied to other paper mills yeah. to you know produce cellulosic ethanol, which is you know again you can't feed someone just on glucose, yeah, but yeah. it's you know it's a lot better than nothing especially as a part of a diet so this could be one of the things we're interested in yeah so you mentioned those advanced commitments around biofuel mandates and i'm curious about other kinds of advanced commitments which we could start thinking about now so in particular as you say um you could imagine a world where we get one of these big shocks and we successfully ramp up food production So we're making enough, maybe more than enough for everyone to get by on. But nonetheless, some parts of the world still can't get enough to eat uh, because they can't afford the food. Uh, I think you mentioned about one and a half billion people could be in that predicament. Can you imagine some kind of advanced commitment for, I don't know, sharing or subsidizing uh, food in that case? I would say that, yeah, there's probably two aspects there. One is the pure affordability. So we need direct subsidies for the poorest. And the other is commitments and understandings around what uh, restrictions potentially market or otherwise on food fed to to meat uh, right. f- food fed into animal systems uh, there could be some still occurring and there may be reasons why you'd want to do this on a small scale but for example dairy 
you actually get a profit. You need to, when, when cows are, you know, the peak milk output, you need to top up their feed a little bit, even if they're on a grazing system. But overall, you get a big profit in terms of calories in versus calories out, human edible. So there may be reasons why you still want to do it on a limited scale. And there may also be reasons why small amounts of meat production may, you know, for a number of reasons, governments may demand to retain it. But commitments around that could be very useful. Just saying, okay, and functionally, well, again, this is, you know, uh, not great for the, or a different, something that vegetarians may not like to consider. There is a reserve of food contained in the animals because we have an equilibrium rate of slaughter. If we destock, we can get more food in short notice. And funnily enough, looking back in the past, the year without summer, Tambora, one of the counterintuitive things was the price of meat fell. Price of crops surged, price of meat fell. Meat was still more expensive than crops, so you weren't subsisting off meat. But the point was, people couldn't afford to keep animals for feed. Mm-hmm. You know, grazing was falling, etc. So they were destocking. This will happen naturally, but it may be sensible for governments to support farmers in doing this because farmers can then, you know, be not feeding feed to animals. Right. So, but yes, I mean, the commitments around the subsidies will need to be. It's it's not a large amount of money. This isn't going to be. We haven't count. You know, uh, the calculations are still ongoing. But it's, you know, in hundreds of billions level. So beyond the capacity of poor countries to pay for, but well within the capacity of developed countries to support. However, I should stress this is a complicated factor because in this scenario, presumably there has been a nuclear war. So this will need, this may not be, for example, America may suddenly be devastated. And this is where the economic modelling we're going to... Basically, we're building it up in layers. We don't want to go for a huge black, like we're talking about with the, well, the general equilibrium modeling is very difficult. We model the full system together. So we're building it up almost like simple rules, like a computer is constructed out of logic gates, each one fairly simple, but you get a complex system out the end. We're trying to build it up like this so we can understand it and make sure what we're building up is sensible. But one of the factors that we need to build in finally is take two people, a poor peasant farmer, in Africa, and a marketing executive in London. Mm. Today, the marketing executive is making you know, hundreds of thousands. The peasant farmer, say, three, four hundred dollars a year. Post disaster, which is richer? Post nuclear war, potentially that peasant farmer is able to feed themselves, and their land is you know one of the only productive pieces of land left in the world. The marketing executive in London, even if they're not directly hit in battle damage, may you know. Is there any demand for their services? Is there a, does their money buy anything in the in the crisis? So it's complicated to model an economy in this regard. Some teams have just said this seems stupid to do so, so we're not trying. We think there are high uncertainties, but there are sensible things that can be done. And fundamentally, if we forget about the money, it sounds odd. Is a quote from Keynes, which is slightly misattributed, but it's anything we can do, we can afford. Mm-hmm. So. To a degree, the money is just trying to ration access to things. If we have the physical ability to produce this food, even if some people can't afford it, inverted commas, we could have action to distribute it. It just depends upon how the political systems and cooperation are set up globally, because this may be produced in a country where the people aren't living. Yeah, I like that point. Um, I suppose there is an angle of criticism, though, that you know you can talk about bounds on the equilibrium price of food after one of these disasters. But 
If this is in the aftermath of something like a large-scale nuclear war, you could easily imagine that finance will be more or less broken, right? To a degree, the financial system will be massively disrupted. And it may settle down to a more simple level of operation. But and it is our hope, and again, this is the kind of thing that ties into what other design, you know, other EA research on yeah. the more macro strategy type things occurs. There still should be a way to, for example, coordinate, receive payments, you know, guarantee, you know, there will be some system in place to hopefully to trade and exchange. And we think that could be maintained. Yeah, so just as a final question here, and kind of as a way of demonstrating that this isn't a game of coming up with, you know, wacky sounding ideas and just assuming they'll work. Were there any really interesting ideas which didn't quite pan out for you? Yeah, I mean, so there have been a chunk where it just seems like they're not going to be as effective as we hoped. Seaweed is one of these categories where it looked like it could feed everyone. Now we've we've scaled it back to a useful, but you know, not uh, doesn't stand alone technology. Mm-hmm. And for example, there was hopes around you know mushroom cultivation, which didn't pay off. Artificial light is one that people immediately jump to, but simply if we devoted all electricity in the world to artificial light we couldn't get enough grain to even feed people minimum calories. Artificial light, and this is where you hit, I mean, we can, on the affordability, there's different measures, depending upon how you calculate it, but fundamentally, that is not affordable. If you don't have enough food for everyone, it is unaffordable. No subsidy can get you out of that situation. So there are some where, yes, it looks hopeful, but it's difficult. that You can, for example, produce food simply from electricity alone but it is much more it's much more expensive the feedstock much like you know fuel is you know hydrocarbon fuel is cheap because it contains it's almost like i mean it's sunlight locked into it we need some source to access that will lower the cost and again in terms of carbon output post-disaster this won't be significant it's it's more cracking this open than actually worrying about you know and it would be only for the length of the of the disaster so mm-hmm. it's not significant volumes of fuel it's more our ability to process it is the problem so let's move on to final questions then so there's three questions we by now always like to ask at the end of the interviews and the first one is these is what is a significant thing that you've recently changed your mind about and why well, so I'm fairly new to EA, and unlike many EAs, I do still eat meat. But I have to say, one of the things that I've changed my mind on is, I mean, I knew factory farming was bad. Every time I encounter anything to do with factory systems around farming, in terms of animals, sorry, I discover again how, for example, even, you know, shrimp like you know farming where i was saying well okay aquaculture seems to be fairly efficient and shrimp have a fairly low level of cognition but no even you know the treatment of shrimp is pretty damn bad ethically and so one of the things i have been doing is moving and i'm pretty sure i'm going to end up vegetarian despite you know i acknowledge that the taste is excellent and maybe there's small amounts of ethical consumption of meat in niche cases that can occur but really i'm going to end up vegetarian i'm pretty sure so that's one of the things i've changed my mind on and Again, we haven't really discussed this. And in fact, we've been discussing the consumption of meat simply because people rather are concerned primarily in all fed. But one of the difficulties today, independent of the food security, is if there's a conflict between a small extra cost for production versus stacking misery on animals, Mm. 
farmers are forced to stack misery on the animals by the market, which is something which there is an opportunity there for action. There is a government, you know, the governments can regulate. The EU is finally getting around to doing this. Factory farming, California has passed laws. And these, you know, I think are under a pre, you know, they're certainly a big part, it, not necessarily on the food security side, but, you know, they are a, a very important thing in the food system, which I didn't appreciate the degree to which this was the case, even working as an agricultural economist, you know, for many years. So this is something I have to say the work of EAs in this regard is you know, very impressive. Nice. Uh, second question is what three books or films, podcasts, whatever, would you recommend to someone listening to this who is curious about finding out more? So, I mean, again, uh, this, if you want, uh, I would recommend reading over potentially some of the papers, such as um, Coop 2019, if you want to see you know, about the nuclear winter and fundamentally what we're struggling with. There's the book of our founder, uh, Feeding Everyone No Matter What. But um, we are, that was the initial pass. And since then, some of the, for example, mushrooms and that seem to be less promising than they were initially. But And we're potentially going to write a blog or, you know, uh, books around these issues and try and you know lay it out for people so it's a touch out of date but still very very relevant though beyond that i'd recommend maybe a few other things uh energy and civilization i really like which is a book by vaclav Schmil and basically lists fundamentally again thinking of the food system as a flow of energy and yeah. why mm. you know it's capped and constrained humans the effort needed just you know time for tasks and how that and it, it really helps just understanding, you know, industrialization and why certain tasks are industrialized. And it sounds weird, but just how long people spent spinning cloth? Right. Like 60% of waking hours for women was spent Whoa. spinning cloth, you know, just into yarn. Yeah. And then just when you had to make every all your clothes by hand. Yeah. And it was why, you know, elaborate clothes were such a fat, you know, over-the-top show of wealth. Yeah, yeah. But um, I guess beyond that, in, in nuclear issues, though I'm throwing far too many books at you here, yeah. Command and Control by Eric um, mm-hmm. Schlosser, was very interesting just as a an overview of how you know you might say this seems mad but very smart people and huge you know lifetimes so many lifetimes of human effort have been devoted to creating nuclear weapons thinking about their use pointing them at each other and you know we came very close to disaster yeah. several times and i mean obviously with you know many publicized cases like in ea of this like stanislav petrov but mm-hmm. uh, you know we came really close to the brink and we need to think about this still and i guess finally there was a guy um neil halloran who does uh, videos he did a very good video showing estimating the deaths in a nuclear war he talks briefly about um just the uh, the potential of a nuclear winter, but doesn't even... At that point, there was no research. There's, there still hasn't been full research published. It's, it's still in preprint in terms of the f- expected fatalities, but he just simply discusses it and talks about direct deaths and other things. And talking in billions and millions, it's very easy to lose you know, the individual human factor. And his video, again, on World War II was very good at this. He's excellent in presenting these ideas, but showing the people that build up into, you know, yeah, yeah. the deaths that we're projecting. And we're saying, well, we can keep it to just battle deaths. That's still hundreds of millions of people. And this would be the worst thing ever to have happened to humanity at that point. And we'll obviously include links to all of those in our write-up. But moving on to our last question then, how might people get involved with this research or with Olfit in general? And in particular, are there any specific areas or kind of research questions that you would like to see more people working on? 
Yeah, so, I mean, all Fed is working on these food security issues from an EA point of view. There are other groups working on food security issues today, but all Fed is more looking at, you know, the under-researched efforts. And we're looking to, so currently we're looking to hire all kinds of people, including, for example, admin staff. So we need to organize projects. We need to, you know, as we're growing, we need to keep things focused. So there's many different positions beyond direct research, but also in research, people who can code, it sounds weird. Python and R is absolute gold dust at the moment to us because we're looking at modeling, for example, on these GIS systems, like the global information systems, where we're you know, modeling a, a complicated system on grid cells. If you can do that kind of work, we'd love to have you. Political scientists, economists, more engineers, all kinds of people. There are one of the things of food is it touches and it's production trade distribution it touches huge numbers of areas so we need a huge number of specialties and this is where all fed over time has branched out from the initial engineering focus to include these areas and it's continuing to expand cool and i think i'll also flag that i think all fed has submitted a bunch of questions like these to the effective thesis project so this is for like students undergrads masters and so on um yeah and it might be cool for for listeners to, to look at this for that but yeah, lastly, where can people find out about you and uh, AllFed online? Well, uh, I'm <laughs> in a few places. You can uh, so AllFed all, all for a start is uh, AllFed.info. If you search AllFed, um, you'll find it on Google. And we also have a Twitter account at AllFed Alliance. But uh, myself, uh, you can probably add me on LinkedIn, Mike Inge, or fire me a message there. And there's, well, if you, ha- if you have any direct comments, you- you're welcome to file them over to me. And that's uh, mike at allfed.info. Fantastic. Michael Hinge, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. That was Mike Hinge on feeding everyone in a disaster. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Mike. There you'll find links to all the papers and books referenced throughout our interview, plus a whole lot more. And if you liked this episode, chances are you might also want to check out episode 21 with Bruce Friedrich on the Good Food Institute. If you know of any other cool resources on these topics that others would find useful, then please do send them to us at feedback at hearthisidea.com and we'll try to add them on the website. Likewise, if you have any constructive feedback, please do email us or click on the website where we have an anonymous form under each episode. And lastly, if you want to support the show and help us pay for hosting these episodes online, you can leave us a tip by following the link in the description. Thanks very much for listening.